This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. We're diving into Ecclesiastes chapter 6 today. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So let's go ahead and get started with verse 1. Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 1 tells us that there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it. But a foreigner consumes it, this is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. So Solomon, of course, has spent the latter part of chapter 5 talking about the folly of riches or the, the love of money and pursuit of riches, not necessarily of being wealthy in and of itself, but the the love of those things and how no one can ultimately be satisfied in pursuing it and even actually acquiring uh, wealth. And so now he goes on, I think, to expand upon that idea further that the man who has wealth and riches and honor and does not enjoy his wealth, riches and honor is he's going to say it, it's his own fault. Um, and we might wonder, well, how could that be the case? Because Solomon says right there in verse two, it said that God did not give him the power to eat of it. And so looking at the text, we ask, well, how could it be the individual's fault when Solomon is saying here is God not giving this individual the power to, to enjoy these blessings from his hand. So, uh, Solomon has actually used this expression before. If you go back really just into the last chapter in verse 19 of chapter 5, he says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Okay, so the if you notice in that verse... And, and think about you know scripture at large and Ecclesiastes in the larger context that the the power to enjoy something here is equated with what? Well, it's equated with accepting one's lot, right? God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil. This is the gift of God. So. The fault is not with God if a man does not have power to enjoy what he has. It's with the man, right? Just as it's a man's fault when God hardens his heart, because the way God does that is by instructing him what to do. And when the man rigidly opposes that instruction, well, then you properly say God has hardened that person's heart, right? And so in the same way, the man who has no power to enjoy things from God must blame himself because what's happening, Solomon is saying, is that he's rejecting God's way of enjoying them. And God's way to enjoy the gifts that he gives is gratitude and contentment. And without these, Solomon is, and he's talked about those extensively already at this point, right? Without those things, no amount of wealth and honor is satisfactory. You see how it ties into the last points that he made within chapter 5, Right, specifically in verse 10, that he uh, who loves money is never satisfied with money, nor with abundance, um, uh, with its income. And the idea there is, again, he just it's like a sieve. You know, that person who's obsessed with wealth is like a sieve. And no matter how much they, you know, you pour water into that sieve, it just keeps going, keeps going through. Right. They're not filled up. They, they're, in, they're insatiable. 
And so that's what Solomon is saying here. That kind of individual, even though he's he's has all these material possessions and wealth at his disposal, he can't enjoy it. He's always chasing more and more and more. And the reason is, is because he's he's rejecting God's way of enjoying them. Right. But the flip side is, you know, if you do accept God's way of enjoying his good material gifts, which is contentment and gratitude, you can be filled up. You can receive, in other words, you can receive power from God to enjoy those things. At least that's how I understand him. And Solomon names this as a grievous evil. So notice there's a moral component here, right? That, you know, that he doesn't have the empowered power to enjoy these things, to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity. It's an evil affliction. So imagine the person that he's describing, a person who has everything, including a large family, a long life. Verse 3, yet his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. That's chapter 6 and verse 3. His soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And then Solomon goes to a really dark place, you know, like relatively speaking, right? Because these aren't the kinds of illustrations that he uses, you know, to illuminate the, this person's spiritual state. You know, we, we don't usually go there just in day-to-day conversation, but he does. And so he goes on to say that a stillborn child is happier than such an individual because that child has rest. And so the, the, he's really just like sticking a, a dagger in and twisting, you know, as he's making this point that it's, it's better not to have an earthly life than to spend your time sulking on earth discontentedly even though you you have life life's good things you know to whatever degree you have those things and you know if you have food and clothing and, and, and shelter those are good gifts from god and until you change your attitude and learn to be happy with what you have you could live a thousand years and never find peace and that's another statement you know, another just, you know, it sounds radical because we don't talk this way, you know, in, in, in everyday discourse. But, you know, Solomon uses this kind of extreme language or was inspired to use it freely. You know, the, that's that's from verse six. Even if a man lives a thousand years twice, but does not see good things, uh, do not all go uh, to one in the same place. Uh, so. That's that's pitiful, right? And Solomon is again reminding us of uh, our eternal destiny. He's going to bring that back into the discussion. So it's a dark and morbid picture, right? That he's that he's using, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's and it's there for a reason. And I think that is to make an impression upon us about the misery of discontentment. It's a misery that we bring upon ourselves. And Solomon again goes on to talk about the shared physical destiny of rich and poor, foolish and wise, and that which troubles him. If you continue reading verses 7 through 12, that all a person's labor is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise person have over the fool? What does the poor person have, knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye sees is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after the wind. So, it's not that, you know, if you look at these verses in a vacuum, as is the case with so many things in Ecclesiastes, if you just 
snatch him right out of context. It can sound like he's contradicting him himself uh, because he's already exalted wisdom, right? He's already, and, and he'll continue to do so, right? That it's, that it's, that it's better to be wise than, than foolish. And so he's not saying that, you know, whether you're rich or poor, wise or foolish, it doesn't matter. Just live your life. And, and uh, because you're all, you know, everybody's going to the grave. Um, that's, that's not the point. You know, what he's talking about here is spending our days, satisfying our appetites only to find ourselves in the grave. And the point is, is that, you know, no matter how wealthy or wise you were in this life, you're not going to change that outcome. So he, so he doesn't mean wisdom is equal to folly here. He's just simply observing the facts that all people, regardless of their walk in life, eventually pass from this life and no amount of wealth and wisdom can save you from that fact. And it's it's futile to complain about this because it was determined long ago. This is what he says next in verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is known what man is. He cannot dispute with the one who is mightier than he. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a person? For who knows what is good for a person during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? So, He's, he, you know, he's fixating on the brevity of life again and then the value of reflecting on life's brevity. He's, he's done that before, too, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 16, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, and now again here in chapter 6, right? He's just circling these points over and over again, right? March of time, unfairness of life, and certainty of, of death. <clears throat> and so first, you know, as he, you know, as he, you know, ask, ask a series of questions, and then he'll go on to answer them, which is what he does in the next chapter, in chapter 7. So, you know, the chapter 6 and 7 are kind of broken up that way. But really, it's it's a continuous thought, you know, which is really true for all Scripture. But, you know, the chapter breaks in the Bible aren't perfect. And verse numbering, you know, it's not, it's not perfect. It's just meant to be a reference point for us. So as we think about these questions that he's asking, and, and we're following his progression of, of thought, he begins to answer... Um, you know, again, what what the point of this is? All right, if if everybody same, shares the same physical destiny, <clears throat> then what what good is there um, to to this life? And Solomon fixates again on the brevity, but then as he answers the the question in, in chapter seven, he says, "A good name." This is verse one of chapter seven. Now, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Well, how so? Well, in scripture. Precious ointment or oil is a symbol of joy. If you read the Psalms, uh, you know the poetry there in Psalm forty-five and verse seven, and in and in Job, it's it's used as this uh, picture of of joy and prosperity. And so, the idea is that dying with a good name is better than having a joyful wealthy birth right as or as we would say you know born with a silver spoon in your mouth and so what he means by this as a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death is better than birth he's not speaking in he's connecting the two ideas in other words he's not saying it's just better to die than to live that's that's not the point but the he, the, the two i don't know if you would call them couplets or or whatever but the two parts of the verse are are joined together an idea you can have is in other words one could have many blessings entering into the world and have just the world at their fingertips and at the same time they could be forsaken 
and just lose all of that uh, privilege and th- you know through foolish living. But to pass from this life having a good name is of more value. All right, so and so that 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 begins to make us think, you know, okay, so okay, we all have the same physical destiny, but Solomon is saying here that you, you know we can we depart from the world in different ways, even though we all depart from the world, right? So, and he goes on to to say this that the day of death and and visiting the house of mourning is of more value. Uh, because they're more effective at motivating spiritual growth. So continue with this thought there in, in verse 2. He says, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, because the end of every person, because that is the end of every person, and the living takes it to heart. So you see what he's see what he's doing there. It's he's rewording the same in verse one, you know, just slightly different. Like there's more value in in reflecting on this and how you're going to leave the world. Is it going to be with a good name, um, and he's saying when you go to the house of mourning, or we might say when you go to a funeral, you know you tend to re- reflect on those things. If you're, you know, fair-minded person and you're honest, it it prompts some self-evaluation in in you, and that's why Solomon is saying that's that's more valuable than going to a house of feasting because, you know, you it's good to have joy and have joy over a new baby and and go to the house of feasting, but that doesn't usually prompt introspection and motivating growth for spiritual wisdom because, you know, those things don't remind you that you're marching to the grave. You know, you're just a step away. And that's why Solomon says the living take this to heart, right? While you have this window of opportunity here and now, if you're honest and humble, you're an accountable person, you know I have a limited time to learn this lesson and appreciate just how short life is. And so... I'm going to begin to redeem the time, right? I understand days turn to weeks and weeks month to months and, and then to years, and they can just slip through our fingers so easily. And so this is, you know, so Solomon, you know, it, it's not just, you know, as we've said, bleak, bleakness uh, to be bleak, you know, just like those dark sayings, depressing pictures that we just read in, in chapter 6 are just there for the sake of it. You know, again, the Holy Spirit chose those words to make an impression upon us that, um, you know, we would, in a way, cling to life even more, I think, or value life even more and understand that, you know, you, you can't really afford, you know, to to waste any any days because none of them are a guarantee. And so he says, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. So that, you know, it's this paradox, paradoxical saying that he's putting here that by, you know, sadness is the heart made glad. Well, how, how can that be? And we think about, you know, the, the Christian's perspective in a new covenant, it shouldn't be strange to us because the same thought is put before us in the New Testament, right? There, there's a particular kind of sadness that leads to joy. And Paul discusses that in 2 Corinthians 7. And, and I believe it's connected to what Solomon is saying here as he's talking about the brevity of life and reflecting on death and going to the house of mourning and how that pushes someone uh, to 
to a better place, or at least it can, in their perspectives and attitudes and, and life, and cause them to reevaluate things so that they stop wasting time, they stop playing the fool. Right, and and the and the way that Paul puts it in Second Corinthians seven is that that godly grief or sadness produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces produces death. So there's a whole lot more to that thought, and you can go to Second Corinthians seven and read what he says there, because the Christians there were engaged in a number of different things, uh, sins that they needed to come out of, and so he writes the first letter and. Uh, those corrections are made, and then one of his protégés comes and gives this good report to Paul. Uh, I'm not sure if he's in Rome when he's writing Corinth, uh, Corinthians. But anyway, it doesn't matter. He gets this good report, and then that prompts the writing of the second letter. And he's praising them. And, and this, and if you look in 2 Corinthians 7, he's actually praising them for their, their repentance. And as he's discussing that, he says, you know, when I wrote to you the first time, it produced this sadness in you, this grief. But now we're rejoicing because of what that sadness led to, which was your repentance, which was, uh, you know, you're, you're turning back to the Lord. And so sorrow produced by the word of God, you know, leads to this progression in the good and honest heart of a person that they repent and that leads to life and blessing. But, but notice the overlap in Solomon's thought, right? So Solomon is talking about uh, sadness, which then prompts this self-evaluation in the house of house of mourning, which then uh, makes the face glad, right? In verse in verse three, and it's the same progression that Solomon is talking about. He's, you know, if we're seeking direction in life, are we more likely to gain insight when confronted with eternal things and our own mortality, or when we're just laughing and having a good time with our friends? So, so that's the observation Solomon is making, right? And again, he's not saying that there's something inherently wrong with laughing and having a good time with your friends. In fact, he'll when we get to the end of the book, he'll he'll say that <clears throat> for clarity's sake. You know, remember God, uh, uh, and uh, remember your Creator in the days of your youth, and uh, go and enjoy your good things. Uh, but remember, He will call every deed into account. And so it's you know it's not that you know enjoying life is wrong. You know, he's already talked about that many times and enjoying, you know, the fruits of one's labor and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but here he's, he's concerned with, you know, gaining that, that spiritual insight. Um, you know, it's Solomon's goal here is to capture, you got to remember his goal here is to capture the meaning and purpose of life. Right? And one key we have to seize upon is that life on earth does not go on forever. And this is why he keeps talking about it over and over and over again, that fact. Because, as he says here, thinking about these realities will, in the end, bring more happiness and peace than an evening just joking around with your friends. And one demonstrates wisdom by seeking out occasions wherein they can gain spiritual discernment. No matter how sorrowful or inconvenient that may be, they're looking for those occasions that will prompt that introspection and self-examination and even sorrow to the end that they make the necessary adjustments and find comfort and hope and, and peace and gladness is what Solomon names here. So, you know, you know, if the occasion is in the house of mourning, you know, we, 
wise people, according to Solomon, will prefer those times and places rather than try to anesthetize themselves or, you know, to create some sort of diversion within entertainment and just get lost in those things so that they never have to seriously consider either themselves and their character or, you know, or their eternal destiny and how those things are related. He says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. You see what he's doing? It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise. Is it fun to be rebuked? No. Does it feel good? No. Can it be useful? Yes. It's better to have that than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. You know, when I think about the song of fools, I think about in our time, you know, all the garbage that floats through the airwaves on the radio and social media and, you know, streaming services that we have now in our culture, you know, that somehow passes for serious music or serious talk or what, you know, whatever. And how much of that stuff is, it doesn't, you know, doesn't have any serious or even moral content it has plenty of immoral content. And I think this is, you know, why Solomon likens the laughter and song of fools to crackling thorns burning under a pot. Um, I've never burned thistles or thorns before, but apparently when you do, they're really loud and they're flashy when they, they burn, uh, but they don't burn for very long, right? They're maybe useful as tinder, I guess, but you know, you don't keep feeding a fire with, with thistles. And so they're so they're not useful, and is the, is the idea. You know, they're not good for cooking. They're not good for really keeping you warm. They're easily extinguished. You know, so by contrast, when we receive the buke of the wise, they can feel like we're being roasted, but in the end, it produces something that will nourish and sustain us. It's not just a flash in the pan. It's not, you know, it's actually useful. You know, elsewhere Solomon said, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Same idea here, a rebuke from a wise friend, or just a wise person, maybe someone that we're not even acquainted with, but they see something amiss, and they care enough about us to bring it to our attention. And if we heed that instruction and that rebuke, and their assessment of things, if it's accurate, well, it leads us to a better, more God-pleasing life. And that's worth more than all the empty praise in the world, all the nights of entertainment. And there's nobody who's better at doing that, of course, than Jesus. There's no better friend no wiser friend who can give us the instruction that we need to hear and call us to repent where we need to repent, to love and obey him. He does it perfectly. But of course, we have to respond and we have to seek those occasions wherein we can hear him speak. And of course, that's through Bible study. That's through hearing sermons, hearing you know, any number of biblical content channels. When we hear those words, we, we hear him. And 
he's he's evaluating us and calling us to evaluate ourselves so that we can find a life of blessing and one that's not wasted and one that brings joy in the end. And only he can offer that. Well, I appreciate you tuning in today. We'll pick up here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 next time.